goodness knows what will his tombstone say. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Donald Trump is facing 91 criminal counts, four ongoing cases, two at the federal level, and state cases in New York and Georgia. He's also spent time in a New York courtroom over the last few months as part of his civil fraud trial that wrapped last week. And as we're recording this episode, a second defamation trial is getting underway. It's the second defamation suit brought by Eugene Carroll for defamation after she accused Trump of raping her. Carroll already won just over $5 million in a defamation trial last year. Uh, This is over different, allegedly defamatory comments. That doesn't even touch on the 14th Amendment argument that Trump is not eligible to be president and those lawsuits moving through the court. There are so many different cases, civil and criminal, revolving around Trump that it's hard to keep your head on straight. So to help us sift through all of these cases... Uh, the timelines, and to make sense of the recent moves and arguments that Trump, his attorneys, and prosecutors are all making, I've invited a very good friend of politicology to join me, Michael Zeldin. Michael is a TV and radio legal analyst and a former federal prosecutor. He held several senior positions at the Department of Justice, including Deputy Chief of the Narcotics and Dangerous Drug Section, the Chief of the Money Laundering and Assets Forfeiture Offices, and Special Counsel for Money Laundering to Robert Mueller who was then the Criminal Division Assistant Attorney General. He's also the host of the podcast That Said with Michael Zeldin. Michael, thank you again for making the time for another one of these Trump legal roundups. We were just remarking before the show that it has been probably since September or October at this point, and it feels like time's flying. So uh, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me back. Why don't we start with a very high-level stage set here. Donald Trump uh, and his affiliates have sort of woven quite a tangled web. Uh, There are a lot of moving cases here, and now there are questions raised in one case that may influence the outcome of other cases. So we're going to look at each of these individually and, and where the questions overlap. But first, between the criminal prosecutions and the civil trials from a very high level, can you describe what this web looks like to you. Sure. And to use the baseball expression, we really do need a scorecard. (laughs) So we've got on the civil side, the principal case is the lawsuit brought by the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, who is asking for a finding that Trump engaged in multiple acts of fraud over a continuing period of time. And she's seeking hundreds of millions of dollars in fines and penalties from him. You also have E. Jean Carroll, as you mentioned, who is suing a second time for defamation. Trump defamed her, was found guilty of that defamation, and was ordered to pay $5 million. And he decided that the best response to that was to defame her some more. And so here we are back in court uh, with that trial underway. The judge has essentially found that he did defame her, and this is mostly about damages, but that's that at at a high level. On the state criminal levels, you've got the New York case. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office has alleged that Donald Trump engaged in fraud. It's a theme with Donald 
Trump's lawsuits, uh, this time involving his company and the manner in which they represented their assets uh, to New York State tax authorities and otherwise. And that case is set for trial later this year, but everyone is waiting to see whether the New York District Attorney will delay it pending federal criminal trials. You've got in Georgia, another uh, state criminal case, this one charging racketeering influence corrupt organization RICO charges against Trump and 13-ish other people for engaging in a series of acts that led to uh, or contributed to the efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election and prevent uh, Biden from taking over. And that case is still sort of in the early stages of the discovery and preliminary motions. On the federal side, we've got two cases, one in Florida in Mar-a-Lago case documents where Trump is alleged to have taken illegally documents from the White House and illegally failed to return them when asked. That case is pending, and the judge has tentatively set a trial date in May, but again, everything is sort of in limbo as we wait for the courts of appeals to make decisions, which we will talk about uh, forthcoming. And then finally, you've got the January 6th case, which is the effort by special counsel Jack Smith to hold Trump accountable for the events of January 6th, obstruction of a congressional proceeding and related matters. He is not charged with insurrection, so that's that. And then you've got a couple of states that are trying to keep Donald Trump off the ballot, alleging that he engaged in insurrection. And under the 14th Amendment, Section 3, if you've engaged in insurrection, you are disqualified from holding office. And so Colorado and Maine has found have found that Trump is ineligible to be on their ballots. And the Colorado case is pending before the United States Supreme Court at the moment. And so sort of in a nutshell, Ron, those are the those are the cases, unless I'm forgetting about something. A whole lot of trouble going on, Michael. Exactly. <laughs> exactly right. Okay. Let's step through these uh, one by one. I think maybe the most recent and the and the the one we can deal with most quickly is the civil fraud trial, uh, because last week there were closing arguments in the civil fraud trial, uh, which is in New York State. Um, maybe you can briefly break that down for us, remind us what the case is about, uh, and um, and sort of where it goes from here. Because if I recall correctly, the judge issued a summary judgment a while back uh, that Trump had committed fraud, um, and that was even before the trial. So what was actually at stake during the trial? Well, so this trial was a civil, is a civil trial, so no one's going to jail. And what Trump is charged with is conspiracy, insurance fraud, falsifying business records. And what Letitia James, the attorney general, has accused Trump of is deceiving banks and insurers by inflating his net worth in order to obtain better rates on loans. And that his Personal Statements of Financial Condition, SFCs as they called them, 
were fraudulent and that now Trump should be disgorged from any profits he made by those false representations and he should, in addition, be penalized for engaging in this pattern of fraud. So the lawsuit was filed. The Trump lawyers responded. And in law, there's an opportunity for judges to settle cases beforehand if there is no matter of fact in dispute. And so you look at the papers and you say, looking at all these facts, is there something that's in dispute? And this judge determined that there was nothing in dispute. That is, it is indisputable that Trump engaged in fraud. And so he granted the summary judgment motion, meaning Trump lost on the question of fraud. And so principally, the trial was about how much damages should he pay for that fraud. But there are about five or six other counts that he didn't dispose of pre-trial, which is why in the course of this trial, you heard all this evidence about whether he inflated his um, net worth and whether he, to, to banks and deflated it to tax authorities. All of that was because there are still counts that have to be resolved by the trier of facts, which in this case is the judge. There is no jury. And and that's significant because a lot of the arguments that you hear Trump make in the hallways and on television and on his truth social are sort of political. This is a politically motivated lawsuit. I'm being selectively prosecuted. The judge and his law clerk are biased. It's all Michael Cohen's fault. Nobody lost any money. All of that stuff are not really legal defenses, and the judge is not going to accept them as legal defenses. Were it a jury trial, a juror might say, yeah, you know, that makes sense. And you get a verdict that's not unanimous. In civil trials, I don't think it has to be unanimous in New York, but it could undermine the verdict or certainly the amount of damages. But cases before a judge and the judges heard closing arguments at which Trump spoke in a tirade for five minutes. And now, I think by early February, the judges indicated he will have a a verdict in the case. And the big question is, how much money will he fine Trump? He's asking, uh, the prosecutors are asking for $300 million. And also to prevent Trump from doing business in New York on a going forward basis, which would mean unwinding his existing businesses. And in fact, the judge appointed a receiver to do that, uh, but the Court of Appeals said, let's just wait and let's see what the verdict looks like and determine whether that's an appropriate remedy. So that's where that stands. Complicated stuff, actually. What exactly does the judge mean by disgorgement? Taking back from you, sort of like clawing back the monies that you got, the profits that you made, by the illegal activity. So for example, in this case, they say if Trump had represented his property values correctly, he would have gotten a loan at, I'll make these numbers up, 10% interest. But because he stated the values differently, he got a loan at 5% interest. So there's a 5% delta between those two interest rates. And in a disgorgement, you would say, all right, what was the benefit? What what did that 5% get you? 5% more money, theoretically. And because that was earned in fraud, you have to disgorge yourself of it. You've got to um, give it back. 
Okay. So that number is going to be rather tricky to calculate, I would imagine, in in certain instances. Because you're essentially playing a subjunctive game, what would have happened if, right? Exactly. Exactly right. And the problem that the prosecutors have in some sense in terms of how does the judge calculate damages is that the banks more or less testified they knew who Trump was. They do do their own due diligence when dealing with him because he's got a reputation. None of them lost any money. In fact, everybody made some money. Um, It's just that Trump made more money than he should have made. And so that's not, you know, it's not victimless. The taxpayers of the city of New York are entitled to taxes, you know, duly owed. Um, But it's not like I come to your house and say, I'm going to tar your driveway. Give me $100 now. I'll come back tomorrow. And I never come back. You know, an advance fee fraud scheme. It wasn't a victim crime that way. There are victims, but they're sort of indirect victims. So it's complicated. And so we're expecting a verdict sometime early February, the judge says, yes? Yes. And the thing that's important to keep in mind, we talked about summary judgment, where the judge on the papers makes a decision and nobody gets to offer any testimony about it because he's decided, you know what, I've looked at all of this stuff and it's indisputable that fraud was committed and therefore we don't need to have a trial on this because there's no uh, issue at fact that's in dispute. That is done, not often. And therefore, this case is as much about the appeal as it is the trial. If they've lost the trial going into the trial because of the summary judgment, then what Trump's lawyers were trying in part to do was to say that was a wrong decision and you, Court of Appeals, should reverse this decision, send it back to the judge for a new trial. And Let's start all over again. When that happens, oftentimes the parties try to reach some compromise settlement. And in this case, Trump might say, all right, fine, I'll pay this fine as long as I don't have to admit to fraud and you don't uh, deny me the opportunity to continue to do business in New York. So there's room for a negotiated settlement if Trump were willing and the Court of Appeals reversed and sent it back. So this, in large measure, has been a case preparing itself for an appeal, which is why Trump, in some measure, was, I think, trying to goad the judge into making some sort of error that would cause the Court of Appeals to reverse and remain, send it back. Okay. So wait and see on this one. Okay. Let's go from New York down to Georgia. Um, one of the big headlines right in the middle of the holiday season was Rudy Giuliani losing the defamation case brought by the two Georgia elections workers who argued that Giuliani's lies about them upended their lives. And, and the lies about these election workers were part of the 2020 playbook to sow doubt in the election. What impact do you think that finding and the award, which was uh, nearly $150 million in damages, uh, will have as we head toward November? Well, it caused Rudy Giuliani to file for bankruptcy. That was the first um, byproduct of $148 million de- decision. You remember the, the plaintiffs, Wanda Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, sued for much less money. Mm-hmm. And the jury 
awarded punitive damages of $75 million. They were so offended by um, Giuliani's uh, behavior and, and, and statements. If it were an ordinary person, if Giuliani were a normal person, then a finding like this, where he is also facing criminal law allegations or could be a critical witness in the federal cases where he's not charged, would lend itself to, let's make a deal. I, Ruli Giuliani, uh, in exchange for dismissal of charges or reduced charges in Georgia, and in exchange for my testimony in the January 6th case, um, will plead and cooperate. That would normally be the case. But I say that requires a normal person, and Giuliani has not been behaving in a mm-hmm. in a normal sort of litigation way. Normally, people, when stung with that sort of verdict, um, find some level of contrition and figure out how can I best mitigate the, the consequences of this. He seems to be still on the warfare, saying that what he said was appropriate and that there is evidence to support it and that um, he doesn't seem contrite at all. And so where does that take us? It takes him back into the courtroom um, in in Georgia and in bankruptcy court in New York, and goodness knows what will his tombstone say. Yeah. One of the things I wonder, and then we should move on to the rest of Georgia, but uh, is whether this raises the stakes for lying about the election and lying about elections officials, you know, as we, as we barrel toward uh, a really horrifying election season, whether this uh, outcome could be a sufficient deterrent. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, for sure, it should be a deterrent about singling out individuals and accusing them personally of, of wrongdoing. Uh, anyone who's thinking about calling an election worker um, something that is defamatory should obviously think twice, 148 million yeah. times. <laughs> but in terms of the election is stole, was stolen, look, in, in the Iowa caucuses, which just occurred, 66%, I think it said, of Iowa Republican caucus goers believe that the election in 2020 yeah. was stolen. So for political person to say to that audience, there was a stolen election, it is a fraud, I am a victim, all that sort of stuff. I don't know that this Giuliani verdict is going to chill that in an, in any way. So I think it's yeah. more to don't talk about people individually, but you can talk at a macro level about the, the system being corrupt and you being the, the, the victim of a yeah. politically motivated witch hunt. Okay. Uh, staying in Georgia. There's the election subversion case brought by the Fulton County DA, Fonnie Willis. Um, there's a there's a, a few different threads to this. I want to talk about Mike, uh, Mark Meadows first, um, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, who tried to have the case moved to federal court. That was denied by an appeals court. Um, can you explain why he was trying to move it and what that means for his case in Georgia going forward? Sure. He was charged as a co-defendant in that election subversion case. He was a federal employee 
at the time. He was the chief of staff in the White House, as you said. And under the, the law of the United States, if you are a federal employee acting in the scope of your employment and you are sued in a state court, you can have the case removed, is the word, which is transferred to a federal court. So a federal court, which is presumed to be more neutral and detached and less parochial, will hear the case. And it was intended to make sure that states don't essentially harass federal um, employees. So Meadows tries to avail himself of that because one, he thinks he has a better chance in federal court because in a jury trial, the jury pool in a federal case is drawn from a, a wider audience of prospective jurors. In the state case, it would be drawn from Fulton County, which is a heavy Democratic stronghold in, in, in Georgia. So he wants to get a better opportunity for a, a more neutral uh, jury. But he was also arguing that it should be removed to federal court and that he should be immune from federal prosecution because what he did were acts undertaken in the scope of his responsibilities as the chief of staff. And so under the law of the United States, if you are acting in your official capacity and you are um, charged with a crime, it's theoretically possible, a court could argue, um, that you are immune from prosecution. We'll talk about this immunity because it comes up in the Trump case. But he was essentially arguing send it to federal court, and then um, apply um, immunity doctrines uh, to me. The court refused to send it to federal court and refused to apply the immunity doctrine. So he is just a regular old state defendant in a criminal conspiracy case in Georgia at the moment. He is appealing the, the decision of the Court of Appeals, which affirmed the trial judge's decision that it shouldn't be removed. And if he loses the effort to get the court to hear it in bonk, meaning all the judges on the on the circuit court, he's going to file a motion for the Supreme Court to hear it. So they're all trying as best they can to get this case before the Supreme Court, though it's not clear to me that the Supreme Court would be very sympathetic to it, but we'll talk about that when we get to the Trump part. So where are we now with Meadows? He's a Georgia defendant with no uh, right of removal no immunity, uh, an appeal that he lost for before a three-judge panel, now pending before uh, the court to see whether the 11 judges on the court, uh, I think that's the number, will will take it and rehear it. And if not, he'll file a cert petition. And if not, he's there in trial. He, like Giuliani, who we just spoke about, could be a very important witness at the state court level and in the January 6th case. He was in the room, as the expression is, when all of this stuff was happening on January 6th, he would be the one who has the most knowledge of Trump's actions and intents and state of mind. And so if he were to lose, I think, and he has a very capable um, counsel in George Terwilliger, and and now this guy, Paul Clement, who's the top Supreme Court uh, lawyer, that he should make a deal. He's a rational actor, unlike Giuliani. And so I would think that if he loses his immunity argument and he's stuck being a regular defendant in in a criminal case in Georgia, 
he'll strike a deal. And that could be critically important testimony, both in January 6th and in the Georgia prosecutions. Now, DA has said she doesn't intend to offer him a plea deal um, or Giuliani or Trump, for that matter, even though we've seen uh, Trump's attorneys, Jenna Ellis and Sidney Powell and Ken Chesbro uh, have all accepted plea deals. So as a prosecutor, what do these moves signal about the DA's case that that she's you know saying she doesn't plan to offer one to him? I don't believe her. I think that if Mark Meadows said that he will be forthright in his account of what happened in the run-up to January 6th and on uh, January 6th and in the aftermath of January 6th, she'd be a fool not to take that testimony. So, yeah, she said that, you know, I I just don't, I don't believe it. If you can get the guy who's the number one uh, to flip on Trump, why wouldn't you take that testimony? Of course. Yeah. 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 So I, so I don't believe it. So she's uh, talking a tough game. Maybe that, maybe that yeah, helps her at this point. But. Yeah. I don't even know why she's talking yeah. at all, yeah. but she is, you know, talking a tough game and we'll, we'll see what it means. And Trump is unlikely uh, to plead guilty to anything. And Giuliani we've talked about is unlikely to, to plead guilty to anything. And so we have this case, which to me at this juncture of, um, Post its post-indictment t- timeline is a little bit surprising to me. You're right that Jenna Ellis and um, Chesborough and Sidney Powell all have pleaded guilty to technical false filing types of um, crimes. They're lawyers. They have their bar licenses to to worry about. So they've got different sets of of, of equities. Um, but I'm surprised that others haven't pleaded guilty yet. And in fact. What we saw is one of the defendants, uh, Roman, who I think is the head of the Republican Party in, in Georgia, has filed a motion to disqualify Fannie Willis and the lead prosecutor, alleging that they're having an illicit uh, extramarital affair and that somehow that impacts the integrity of this uh, prosecution. So some are being uh, just as aggressive back. Um, at Fannie Willis as she is talking a tough game um, with respect to them. We'll see how this allegations about um, the extramarital affair between Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade that has been alleged without any uh, documented proof of it plays out. But even if it were true, worst case scenario, Fannie Willis hires Nathan Wade among other prosecutors that she brought in because she wanted him to earn extra money so that the two of them can enjoy the fruits of of that extra money going on vacation together and stuff. I could see um, a court asking that they be recused from the case, that the appearance of that is just too much and individually uh, they have to step aside for that uh, miscalculation. But it doesn't infect affect the integrity of the prosecution. It would just be new prosecutors take over. When I was a prosecutor and people would say, well, you're prosecuting international money launderers and drug traffickers. Aren't you afraid that you're going to get killed? And I'd say, no, I'm, I'm completely fungible. You can 
replace me with any other prosecutor. The ones who has to be nervous are the DE agents who are undercover, who have the unique knowledge, Mm. because if they're gone, uh, the case is gone. So in this case, if Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade are gone, then they'll be, you know, son of Nathan Wade and son of Fannie Willis, and they'll just continue the prosecution. And those guys have to deal with their bar exam, you know, bar license and, and, and other stuff. And it might affect Fannie Willis's uh, ability to run for re-election. So all that stuff is a lot of personal baggage. But if you're looking at this case from the outside saying, oh my God, is this going to mean that the Georgia case is over and I can't find the day in the future when Donald Trump will be held? <laughs> no. The case the case should proceed. Um, it just may be, uh, you know, the, the, a new quarterback. It, it, it is uh, important to note, though, just how sort of... Uh, politically bad this is. Uh, and, and obviously with all of these cases, uh, they accrue to Trump's benefit. Um, they, they, um, you know, he uses this, them as an opportunity for political gain and, and, and it works. So even the op, the optics, even if, uh, in, in the worst case scenario, and again, there's no evidence yet so far, um, but they still doesn't look good. Um, and it certainly would help him if that were the case. Not legally speaking, but yeah. Well, no, absolutely, because if his political defense is, I am being singled out because I'm the front runner by politically motivated prosecutors who are acting in bad faith, then this fits that narrative. Okay. Now, the million-dollar question, uh, which is presidential immunity. So. This is a major question in the federal election subversion case, which is whether Trump enjoys a very broad presidential immunity from prosecution. Now, the special prosecutor had asked the Supreme Court to take up the case on an expedited basis, even before the circuit court. Um, Why was that something Smith would want to happen, Jack Smith, the prosecutor, and why wouldn't the Supreme Court? take this up? Those are two great questions. The first question, I think the answer to it is that he expects that if this case were to have gone before the intermediary court first, it would ultimately get to the Supreme Court. So he's just saying to the Supreme Court, I have a trial date in March. It's important that we get this trial underway before the election starts. Why would you not want to take something that you're ultimately going to have to take? Let's just, you know, sort of get it done. Um, Now, the Supreme Court said, no, thank you, which came as a bit of a surprise to me because I would have thought that they would have thought because this is going to get to them ultimately, let's just dispense with it because we've got this trial uh, date and we've got this campaign underway. But they chose to let the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia um, hear it. And so it went before three judges, two appointed by Biden, one appointed by George H.W. Bush. And the argument was um, put forward there. Before we get to the substance of the argument, I could say that maybe the Supreme Court's thinking was, look, the D.C. Court of Appeals is the second most important court in all of America. They handle all of these types of cases and have done Nixon and Clinton, all of them go there. 
So if this court in a three nothing powerful, there is no question here, but Trump loses type of opinion, the Supreme Court might say, you know what? We don't need to take this case. We've got the second highest court in the land with respected jurists opining on the answer to the question Trump posed, and we're just going to leave it be. And it's almost like an off-ramp for them. They don't have to get involved in the you know, stickiness of, is the Supreme Court putting its finger on the scales of something like they suffered in the Bush versus Gore um, case? Something so, Roberts wants nothing to do with. Yeah. Exactly. So maybe they're thinking... Please, you know, please, yeah. Court of Appeals, give us, give us a, a, you know, a solid basis for saying we don't need to answer this because the law is, is, is clear. So, Michael, I think one, there's, so there's this one exchange that got quite a lot of attention uh, during the arguments uh, in front of the judge that the Trump's attorney was making. I've got a clip of it here. It's a good, uh, uh, it's an entertaining exchange, but what I really want to get to are the arguments in favor of presidential immunity. So I'm going to play this and then maybe we can unpack what's going on here and and the and the larger arguments that they're making. Could a president order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival? That's an official act in order to SEAL Team 6. He, he would have to be and would speedily be, you know, uh, uh, impeached and convicted before the criminal what prosecution. What if you weren't? There would be no criminal prosecution, no criminal liability for that. Chief Justice's opinion in Marbury against Madison and uh, uh, and our constitutional tradition and the plain language of the impeachment judgment clause all clearly presuppose that what the founders were concerned about was not. I asked you a yes or yes or no question. Could a president who ordered SEAL Team Six to assassinate a political rival who was not impeached would he be subject to criminal prosecution? If he were impeached and convicted first. And so, so your answer is, is, no. is my answer is qualified, yes. Okay. So Trump's attorney there reaching all the way back to Marbury versus Madison in defense of this claim. Um, what exactly are they arguing? Because for many people who heard this clip, it sounded kind of insane that the president could not be held responsible for doing something like this. But um I have gathered now that the reason this is such a major question is it's because it's kind of in an ambiguous area of law, that there is some, there's a doctrine of presidential immunity uh, and we're arguing over the contours of it. Is that accurate? How do, how do, you, how do you interpret this? In, in a sense, that's right from the Trump argument standpoint, but from the Office of Legal Counsel, the office in the Justice Department that analyzes the questions that are before this court. They have been asked and have answered, does a president, a former president, enjoy absolute immunity from prosecution? And they have said, no. We saw that in the Mueller case. Remember, Mueller said, I can't indict Donald Trump, even if the evidence warranted it, because he's a sitting president. McConnell said in voting against convicting Trump in the Senate, I am voting against convicting him because he has already left office, but his conduct will be dealt with in the courts. So everyone assumed from McConnell, from a political standpoint, from the office of OLC in the Justice Department, from Mueller as a special counsel, that former presidents do not enjoy absolute immunity from prosecution. 
Hence the question, are you saying, Mr. Trump, that if you kill your opponent with SEAL Team 6, you are immune from prosecution? His answer is yes, unless I am previously indicted, meaning impeached in the House and convicted in the Senate. Now, there really isn't much affirmative law that supports that argument. They're doing it on a negative inference drawn from the constitutional uh, provision that says uh, if, if you're convicted, you can be tried. doesn't say that if you haven't been convicted, you can't be tried. That's what they're arguing, it, it says. And it leads to the preposterous proposition that the court um, tried to pin Trump's lawyer down on, which is this doctrine that you argue is essentially a get out of free from jail card because a couple of things. One, of course, no president in the history of the United States has ever been convicted in the Senate uh, for impeachment. And so it's a pretty high bar that's being set. And then second, suppose the president in his second term decides that, you know what, I've had it with all these critics of mine. I'm going to just mow them down. And he does, and they're all dead. And he resigns, says, you know what, I'm done. I'm out of here. He drops the mic. Well, by Trump's analysis, because he's no longer president and can't therefore be impeached, he is immune from that conduct. I find it not likely that a court will accept that proposition. It's possible that a court could say, like when we talked about the civil cases, whether he's in the outer bounds of his conduct or official conduct, or whether he's in his private conduct, that the court could say, if a president of the United States is acting in his official capacity as president, under certain very rare circumstances, will we hold him or her immune from criminal prosecution? In fact, Trump's lawyer posited a hypothetical of Obama deciding to drop drones and in the process of dropping drones in Afghanistan or someplace, an American citizen is killed possibly in violation of, of, of law. You could see a Supreme Court saying maybe under those circumstances, the president enjoys immunity from prosecution because it's so integral to the responsibilities he has as president. But here, not so, not so factually. And by the way, like in the Marks Meadows case, we don't find that what he was doing was in the scope of his official capacity anyway. Overturning an election is not part of your official responsibility. So they can say maybe in the right case we'll confer immunity on a former president, but this is not the right case, and you're going to lose on the absolute immunity argument, and you're going to lose on whether you were acting in the scope of your official responsibilities. And if they, as we talked about earlier, give a unanimous, forceful decision, the Supreme Court might say, we don't need to hear this. <sighs> so we're waiting to see what this three-judge panel does. And if it's, if it's three-nothing, then maybe they don't touch it. Otherwise, it's going to be appealed. What kind of timeline would you expect to see from the circuit court? They're going to file an appeal. 
appeal to the Supreme Court no matter what, because the tactic that Trump is using overarchingly in all of this litigation is delay the date of reckoning, delay the trial, the onset of the trial. So like Mark Meadows, if they lose 3 nothing in this case, they will most likely file a motion for en banc total court review, which will take a couple of weeks for the court to decide. And if they say no, then they'll file the certiorari petition, the request for the Supreme Court to hear it. Neither the en banc or the certiorari are mandatory. Those courts have the option to take or reject the application for it to be heard. But that's a couple of weeks. So best case, the uh, three-judge panel issues an opinion in the coming weeks. Let's say Valentine's Day, we, we get a decision. Then there's a, and they might say to them, if you want to take this case up in bank, we're going to give you two weeks to file your your appeal in bank. And the court on the in bank side takes two weeks. And then they file a, a cert petition, uh, you know, two weeks or three weeks later, and the Supreme Court issues a decision not to take it. Then the speediest that case goes forward probably is a trial date in May. If the Supreme Court takes cert or the support the the court and bank the total court takes it then i don't know that we're seeing a, a trial date um until uh, the yeah. summer okay uh late summer because the court the supreme court if it takes it this yeah. term generally speaking if they do the normal calendar they'll decide it by the end of june they could do it on a hurry-up basis like they did in Nixon in the Watergate tapes case, take cert and issue an opinion within a few weeks. They did that in Bush v. Gore. Remember, those were litigation cases that were ongoing and very quick because we're in the middle of a presidential um, election. And so the court has the power to do all of this. But I think, Ron, the most likely scenario, best case scenario for the prosecutors is a trial date in the Mayish time frame and the worst, assuming they win, of course, if they lose, then that's that. But if they win, then possibly a trial date in July, August. Okay. Um, I want to ask you what the outcome of this question, the immunity question, has to do or how it bears down on the other cases and which other cases. But should we talk about Fisher first? Let's settle up with immunity. Immunity, okay. if it's granted, immunity, you know, like a vaccination is means you're immune. You're, you're, you're not uh, chargeable. And so uh, immunity for a former president would impact Mar-a-Lago and would impact January 6th, right, the documents case, and um, would affect um, the, the Georgia case uh, as well. So if the and New York, if the New York criminal, if the court holds that a former president is immune, absolutely, from criminal prosecution, it could wipe out all of all, all of the cases. And yeah, because the same defense would be put forward. You can't, state of Georgia, charge me because I've got uh, federal immunity. They mo- remove the case to federal court and he gets... Um, Immunity. I mean, maybe not 100% in Georgia, but the likelihood is if he wins on this absolute immunity 
question, that's a very bad day for all federal and state prosecutors. If he uh, loses, then he could lose in an absolute way. Four presidents do not have absolute immunity, period, full stop, which is what Judge Chutkin did in the trial level. Or they could say, you know what, it depends on whether or not he was acting in his official capacity. So we're going to send it back to the district court to have a hearing on whether or not what he was doing was in the scope of his official conduct or not. And then she says, no, it wasn't. And then he appeals that. So there's the potential here that this case could, notwithstanding my predictions of timelines of May, June, July, if it gets sent back for fact finding and then another rounds of appeals, we may not see this case hit trial before um, the November election. Okay. Um, Let's talk about Fisher then, which is this case that uh, doesn't actually involve Trump, <laughs> but could have huge implications. Uh, Fisher v. United States. Can you talk about what's at question in this case? There was a scandal some number of years ago called Enron. It was a company that was engaged in fraudulent activity. Its accounting firm, Arthur Anderson, was subpoenaed for documents, and um, they were alleged by the prosecutors to have shredded those documents. Um, before trial. Everyone was convicted. Arthur Anderson gets knocked out of business. The Supreme Court rules 9 nothing um, that that was a bad prosecution. So in the aftermath of the Supreme Court ruling that the Enron prosecution, the Arthur Anderson prosecution, was uh, null and void, Congress passes a law. And that law is an obstruction of congressional inquiries and investigations law which says if you do anything to obstruct a congressional inquiry or an investigation, then you can be found guilty, including acts unrelated to you know, the destruction of evidence itself. So the prosecutors have been using this interfering with a congressional inquiry investigation statute to prosecute the insurrectionists. And they've won uh, uniformly, all of these guys have been convicted under this um, obstruction statute for interfering or obstructing a congressional investigation. And Trump himself is in the January 6th uh, indictment charged under the same statute. So this guy, Joseph Fisher, who was one of the insurrectionists, he shows up at the, the Capitol. He's accused of assaulting a police officer and engaging in disorderly conduct and obstructing a congressional investigation proceeding under this statute. He was convicted. And the U.S. Court of Appeals um, affirmed that conviction, saying that, yes, this statute, which may have been written in the context of Arthur Anderson allegedly destroying documents is broad enough to cover any other efforts to interfere with a congressional inquiry. Fisher says, no, 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 that's way too broad a reading of this case. This is about destroying documents. And if I'm not destroying documents, which I didn't do, um, this statute is improvidently used against me. And the Supreme Court has said, you know what? Okay, we'll take a look at that. That was a surprise. Um, and it has major implications for 
all of the insurrectionists who were convicted under this statute, and there are a lot of them, and also, as you say, for Donald Trump, who has been charged with it in the January 6th case. It's not the only charges in the January 6th case. So were the Supreme Court in Fisher to rule that this statute is um, inappropriate for this insurrectionist behavior, and it really is a document destruction statute, then I think two of the four counts in the Trump indictment get thrown out, but he still has other uh, counts that are viable, notwithstanding a, an adverse decision in, in Fisher. So he would still go to trial whenever that trial occurs. He would still go to trial on those other counts, but it would knock out a you know essential argument that the prosecutors would like to make that Donald Trump, through you know a series of conduct with a group of unindicted co-conspirators, conspired to prevent the orderly transfer of power. So if the court rules in favor of Fisher, does that then nullify all of the convictions for all of the January 6th rioters that the Department of Justice has secured so far? It depends on the ruling. If the ruling says, is narrowly tapered, saying I'm looking at this statute, 18 U.S. Code, Section 1512C, I'm looking at this statute, the court's saying, and it was drafted in the context of destruction of documents, and therefore it is only going to be usable for destruction of documents. If you were convicted of interfering with the congressional congressional proceeding on January 6th and you didn't destroy documents in doing so, then your case should get tossed. You should get reversed. Now, a lot of these guys, like Fisher himself, I think he was convicted of assaulting a police officer and disorderly conduct. Those counts would remain, but the primary count of obstruction of congressional proceeding would, would get would get tossed. So he would be in the same sort of position as Trump, which is they they he wins partially, um, but not uh, completely. Trump would not have to go to trial completely on the four counts. He would go probably on uh, two of the four counts. We talked about in the immunity cases how we would hope that the Supreme Court would act quickly. Similarly, um, if we get to it and we have time, the 14th Amendment, we would hope that the Supreme Court would get to it quickly. It would seem that there's an imperative here. The court haven't, hasn't indicated in Fisher whether it intends to act expeditiously on this case or whether it plans to handle it in a normal course and issue a decision uh, sort of way down the line, possibly June. And you wouldn't want as a prosecutor to start your trial. Let's say everything right. goes well for you and you're able to start your trial in May and you're starting this trial only to find right. out in June that two of your four counts are, right. are kaput. So yeah, so not not the, not the, simple the stuff. High courts hearing oral arguments right now. The term starts in June, so is it ends ends, ends in June, June? Yeah, right. So. <sighs> uh, yeah, there's a lot to sigh about. There's a there's a lot to sigh about because there's just so much unknown uh, at this point, and there's and there are some, you know, fairly gargantuan open questions here all over the all over the yeah. law as it pertains to Trump. Exactly, and if you look at Fisher as an example of the point that you just made, is he gets convicted at trial, the um, District Court then um, 
dismisses the charges, saying that the statute doesn't apply. It gets appealed and reversed. So you have within the District of Columbia court system, two different judges looking at the same statute and disagreeing, which is probably why the Supreme Court took this one, because there was disagreement. Um, so this is by no means uh, straight, straightforward. And the strict constructionist types on the Supreme Court might want to find a reason, irrespective of Trump, to narrowly define what Congress's intent was, because they tend not to be readers of broad congressional power generally. And so this is a case where if it had nothing to do with Trump at all, they still might say, you know what, this is an overly broad reading and it's inapplicable. (sighs) Michael. Okay. Mm. Uh, A huge part of these conversations about all of the legal proceedings Trump is facing are obviously the question of whether he's eligible or ineligible under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. So I think we should touch on that um, briefly because there are lots and lots of questions to unpack here. And we're, we're working on a, a whole episode unpacking the legal argument uh, that's being put forward. Um, but the Supreme Court's decided to take up the Colorado case, banning Trump from the primary ballot uh, in the state. There are a whole bunch of questions here. Um, one is, you know, how narrowly they decide to look at this case versus how uh, broadly. Um, can you, if you had a sort of crystal ball, uh, and we've laid out these arguments before, but, you know, I think they amount to, um, uh, was there an insurrection on January 6th? Did Trump engage in it? Uh, is the president an officer, um, uh, under the constitution? Uh, and are parties allowed to, does being ineligible to hold office mean you are also ineligible to appear on a ballot? Those are two completely separate questions, and political parties have the ability to determine who their nominee is going to be. Um, and what sort of due process is one entitled to? Uh, and in the Colorado case, was the finding of fact sufficient enough to establish that an insurrection did and it did in fact happen? So there's a whole lot of questions here. Um, I've talked a lot about this and probably have a stronger view on this legal question than a non-lawyer uh, might be might be safe in having. However, um, it's quite, it's a conservative argument. It's an originalist argument, and and the logic chain makes very very good sense to me uh, that that he is in fact not qualified to hold office now. How that's effectuated is is a big question. Um, can you tell me what you think about this? <laughs> what, how you think the Supreme Court will um, maybe not decide the case, but how narrowly you think they'll 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 deal with it? Will they only look at the question of whether he's qualified to whether he whether the court erred in Colorado in determining that he can't appear on the ballot, or will they try to deal with the 
bigger substantive constitutional argument about eligibility? I don't know is the, the, the honest answer. And, and you're right to say that it is really complicated to understand it. And uh, you, this is a conversation that is worthy of an entire um, politicology episode. So, but in, in a nutshell, uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment disqualified Confederate officers from rejoining the Union and taking their uh, former place in Congress. It was specifically designed to keep insurrectionists out of the, the Union once they came back because of their insurrectionist, treasonous behavior. The Colorado case argues that Trump, having engaged in an insurrection, sits in the same position as these former Confederate officers did, essentially, engaged in insurrection, treasonous behavior, and therefore, under this Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, is disqualified from holding office. And that there was a, a hearing in Colorado to answer those questions, and the Colorado Trial Court and the Court of Appeals, Supreme Court of Colorado, rather, said he is disqualified. Now, the Supreme Court has taken cert in the case uh, with uh, petitions filed by Trump and by the Republican Party of Colorado, which raises a, one different issue than did Trump. So the threshold question that the court has to answer is, does Section 3 of the 14th Amendment apply to the presidency? When this was passed, it, they were talking about people returning to their positions in the House and in the Senate. It didn't really contemplate a person sort of returning to the presidency or be, be, being the president. And so as a threshold question, the court has to say, does this apply to the president? If the answer is it does not apply to the president, then that's that. The case is over and the Supreme Court just says, sorry, it doesn't apply to the president. But they could say it does apply to the president. And then you go to the next step, which is, well, if it applies to the president, did Congress have to enact legislation to give effect to this? Or is it self-executing, meaning that once the statute, once the amendment is passed, uh, it's immediately in effect. Congress needs to do nothing about it, and the states are free to determine what they want about determining whether state candidates are insurrectionists and excluded or not. If the court says, the Supreme Court says, Congress needed to have passed legislation, then the case is over because Congress didn't pass legislation in this context. They passed it in the criminal context, meaning if Trump were accused of insurrection by Jack Smith and convicted of insurrection, then Section 3 of the 14th Amendment would absolutely apply because there is enabling legislation. There's a criminal statute. Here, there is no, if you will, civil enabling statute. So if the court says it's not self-executing, then the case is over. If the court says, no, you know what? It is self-executing. States are free to do with this as they want. It's a state court matter. 
Then it goes back to the states, theoretically, and the question would be, did Trump have substantive due process in those hearings? Remember, these are not really uh, traditional civil lawsuits. One was an election challenge, you know, sort of like, am I 35 or am I a natural born uh, citizen or do I reside in the congressional district? Did I have the right number of signatures on my petition? That's the sort of stuff that they normally deal with in these election contest cases. And so the question might be, well, in this context, an insurrection and keeping up a, a, a person off the ballot for something as complicated as insurrection, was that process adequate as a matter of due process? And remember, in Maine, it was even less. There was no real... Right. trial or anything. It was just the Secretary of State, un, you know, sort of unilaterally made um, that decision. But if the courts, the state courts say, yeah, you know what, we think there was adequate uh, due process. Um, and we determined that Trump engaged in insurrection and therefore he's disqualified, then he would be disqualified. And it's not clear that the Supreme Court has to get to the question of, did he engage in, and in, was this an insurrection and did he engage in it? That's sort of a possible, leave that to the state's decision if it's self-executing. So it's complicated. The other thing that's sort of interesting as you, as you raise it is the section three says, these former Confederate uh, folks are not eligible to hold office. Unless ah. both houses of Congress, by a two-thirds vote, allow them back. That's right. Right. Remove such disability, which is actually what happened. There was an amnesty act, I think, by Andrew Johnson that they all came back. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, it was as if they, right. they won right. the war, you know. So Trump argues, and I think he has a, a an argument here, that it says – I am disqualified from holding office. It does not say anything about my being able to run for office because Congress has the ability to let me hold that office, which I ran for and won by a two-thirds vote. And you can see sort of a, an argument, a principled argument that says, look, the guy was allowed to run for office because the disqualification clause only covers holding the office. The people of America have spoken they want him as the president. And so who am I to deny the will of the people uh, and not and not seat him because I believe that he engaged in insurrection? So it's I, I think he gets to be on the ballot um, on on this argument that he's allowed to run even if he's not allowed to hold office because of this uh, amnesty uh, uh, opportunity. But um there's no way of knowing that. The other thing in respect to running for office, the Colorado Republican Party has said, look, we have a First Amendment right to nominate whoever we want. If we want to nominate someone who's under 35 or who's a foreign national, we have some First Amendment right to do that. Now, the person may not be able to hold office. That's another matter. But we have a right to put forward whoever we want. I want to put forward Donald Duck. I can put forward Donald Duck. Donald Duck may not be able to hold office, um, but that's my prerogative. And um, many people wish that they would put I'd Donald Duck. I'd take Donald Duck, Duck at this point. Of another, instead, of, <laughs> instead of the Donald. But 
Um, it's a bad joke. But the, the point being, they have argued that they, they're, as a party, denied their First Amendment rights to put forth the candidate of, of their choice. So I will look forward to hearing your yeah. episode on this with smarter people than am I. But that's sort of the, 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 the sliding scale of decisioning. And the, the Supreme Court has, a, has very easy right. off-ramps. Right. To say it doesn't apply to the president, we're right. we're done. It does apply to the president, but Congress had to enact, we're we're done, without ever getting to the question of was this an insurrection and did he engage in an insurrection? Because those are those are questions yeah. of fact. And I don't think those questions of fact are properly before the court. So the court could say it does apply to the president, it can be. Um, it, it, it is self-executing, um, but we instruct the lower courts to look at the due pro- take a harder look at the due process that was afforded um, uh, Trump in each of their states and determine whether or not it meets with due process, which could then, if they say it does meet with due process, he could then appeal that decision. And the cycle of delay, um, Goes on and on. You know, I worked for a, a lawyer when I first came out of law school, who was a very accomplished uh, Justice Department uh, attorney, and then uh, uh, storied uh, private sector attorney. Argued before the Supreme Court on some important cases, and I said to him once, "What, as a defense attorney, what was your greatest victory?" And he said, "I once got an indefinite continuance." <laughs> And so, you know, people say about Trump, delay, delay, delay. But if the greatest victory of this, you know, wow. storied lawyer was he got an indefinite continuance, meaning his client never had to have wow. his day of reckoning, that's a big victory. And so if Trump can accomplish an indefinite continuance, if you will, that, you know, that's what that's what his lawyer should be working on. I don't I don't disparage them for trying that. You and I, if we were lawyers defending um, Trump, we would yeah. do the same thing. And, you know, if he wins re-election and has therefore the constitutional power to end the federal cases, then that's the system. And that, you know, you hear people on TV all the time say, oh, you know, we believe in the rule of law. Of course, if the rule of law doesn't get them the outcome right. they want, they, they're quick to jump they're ship. Not, so they don't, yeah. they don't believe they're, they're, in it uh, quite as, quite they as quickly. Belief. I think that if he's allowed yeah. on the ballot, it'll be because the parties have a First Amendment right to nominate. But I think if he wins in November and this ends up in front of Congress, then I think we're in for a big crisis. You know, the thing that's so interesting about this upcoming election, just to divert for a second on politics, is that, and you know way better than me, you've got uh, two major party candidates and at least two significant or three significant third party candidates, Jill Stein, um, oh, yeah. Robert Kennedy, and... Cornell West. Yep. Cornell West. Don't forget, yeah. we've also got the no labels blank ticket floating out there. And possibility yeah. of the no, lab, uh, no labels candidate. And so if no one gets uh, a majority of the electoral college, goes to the House, and it goes to the House, then the House picks the president based on majority of uh, 
co, uh, yeah. state delegations and Republicans hold more than Democrats. So Republicans would pick the president in the House. In the Senate, um, the Senate picks the vice mm -hmm. president. And the Senate has, at the moment, a majority of Democrats. And so you'd get the Republican House picking the Republican president and the Senate, the Democratic Senate picking the vice president. And um, that will be a lot yeah, of fun. I still think they're going to have to contend with Congress removing such disability, and they're going to need to get two-thirds uh, vote there. But there are numerous scenarios that that could play out in January 2025, and none of them are very pretty. <sighs> yeah. I, I say jokingly, I do a lot of television for the Canadian Broadcasting yeah. Company. And it's at odd hours because they've got a lot of Western time zones that I have to contend with. Yeah. And I always say, look, I'm doing this, but if the election turns out in a way that I don't want it to turn out, I am going to rely on you for a letter of recommendation <laughs> for Canadian citizenship. They say, all right, if you appear at 6 a.m., you know, you, on our show, then I'll write that letter of recommendation. Oh, man. Okay, Michael, we've talked about Curiouser, curiouser and, and curiouser. curiouser. You know, right? in your notes, which were just wonderful, there was this line about uh, the, the, the timeline and, and you wrote, God only knows, and there may even be confusion up there. So that's yeah. <laughs> just exactly yeah. where that's we right. are now. So, you know, odds, Trump goes to trial before election, uh, better, better, worse than 50-50. I think he loses the immunity argument. I think the immunity cases go through the courts quickly. I think the likelihood or the possibility that January 6th trial can go forward are fifty better than 50%. Mar-a-Lago, the documents case, is, is unclear. That, too, if there's no immunity, should be able to go forward. But the trial judge in that case, a Trump-appointed very inexperienced trial judge seems to be slow walking it. And I don't know whether she's slow walking it because she's new and it's complicated and she's acting in good faith, or she's, as the liberals would argue, is, is a tool of the president and is doing it to aid in his um, campaign. I, I tend not to agree with that. I don't know that there's evidence to support it, but nonetheless, that case is not moving very quickly. Um, and it should be able to, because it seems, say for the national security documents, issues that have to be resolved, it's a pretty narrowly um, ring-fenced yeah. um, set of legal yeah. issues. <sighs> okay. Anything else you want to touch on before we before we go? I feel like we've we've covered the landscape here um i i think i think we have the only thing we didn't talk about and it doesn't matter all that much other than the principle of it which is in um some of the trump trials there are gag orders that are in effect that have gone to the trial judges and then gone to the court of appeals the bottom lines of which are that trump has some broad First Amendment rights to argue that these cases are politically motivated and that this is a witch hunt and 
he is being persecuted. He can argue all those things in broad terms. He cannot attack the court personnel or make statements that would taint the jury pool or something, you know, sort of in the in, along the lines that Giuliani did with the election workers. And so the courts in these cases have said he doesn't have unbridled First Amendment rights. They are um, narrowly tapered to protect the integrity of the, the criminal justice system and the prospective trials, but they're not so narrow as to prevent him from being a candidate um, and complain about uh, what he's been asked to go through. Yeah. He really enjoys any opportunity to grandstand. Most most politicians do, in my experience. Yeah, it turns out that. Uh, Who knew? <laughs> Michael, um, where should everybody find you on the internet? And uh, And how frequently do you release podcast episodes? So my podcast, That Said, with Michael Zeldin, is a, a book, like book TV sort of podcast. I interview authors about books. Some of the books are, you know, relevant to political conversation. Heather Cox Richardson, I just interviewed. But others are um, n- not so. I just interviewed, and it'll be released in two weeks, Sanjay Gupta mm-hmm. about his book about maintaining brain health. And I, I think have a upcoming podcast on Thursday talking about recovery from addiction using culinary arts. Oh, wow. So it's a, um, a boiling of the ocean of, of, of topics, but pretty much every week on Apple and, and Spotify and all the major things, there's me discussing a book, um, of interest, uh, to me. I appear very intermittently on X. I do not appear on TikTok or Instagram and uh, don't do anything political on Facebook. And uh, occasionally on TV. And occasionally on TV. Exactly. It's so good to have you here again. Um, let's not let it go quite so long. Uh, but I have a sense we'll have news in the coming months that's going to start to sort of organize all of this into, um, and just, you know, more more known knowns than unknowns, hopefully. Yeah, I think by early spring, mid-spring, we should be getting, we should, by early to mid-spring, we should begin to see answers coming. And that could be a portend of how the trial deadlines and yeah. um, begin to shape Let there up. be clarity. Okay. Uh, Michael, thank you so much. My pleasure. I love doing this show. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. 
I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.